This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Ayanna Presley, Boston City Council member and Democratic candidate for Congress in Massachusetts 7th Congressional District. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for the opportunity and, uh, and thank you for creating this show. Yeah, we really appreciate that. Now, a quick note to our listeners, we are recording this on Tuesday, July 3rd. News is coming out at such a rapid pace that you might know something we don't about what we'll be discussing today. With that being said, Ayana, your race has been receiving a lot of attention in light of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory in New York's 14th. You are also a progressive woman of color challenging a white male incumbent who has been in Congress since 1999 and also represented a different district before for the most recent redistricting process. Tell us about why you decided to jump into this race. Why is the incumbent Democrat not good enough for your constituents? And what are you going to do better in Congress? This is the most diverse district uh, in our delegation and the most unequal. And I'm running because I want to do something about it. Um, The systemic inequities Um, that are becoming further entrenched under this administration, economic inequality, the wealth and wage gap, structural racism, gun violence. These are the issues that I've dedicated my life to, um, not just my council tenure, and they're only worsening under uh, the administration of this man occupying the White House with his racist, bigoted, insensitive, cruel, and short-sighted policymaking every day. And so I want to be in the fight. I just want to take it higher and farther. And I want to uh, lead and legislate in such a way that we disrupt these disparate outcomes in the 7th Congressional District and change the legacy of it from being uh, the most diverse and yet the most unequal. And finally, I do believe these times require um, activist leadership, leaders that will vote the right way, that will lead, that will legislate, that will be bold, and most importantly, that will extend a hand of partnership and build movements and build coalitions. Disrupt. I love that you use that word because that's something a lot of politicians, a lot of people within the Democratic Party are terrified of saying. And it reminds me of how in your campaign launch video you say, being an ally is easy, but we need intentional advocacy. What have you seen from your incumbent in Congress? How have you seen him not embrace the intentional advocacy that we need? Well, again, ultimately, the reason why I'm running is because the 7th Congressional District is arguably one of the most progressive districts in the country. This was a seat previously held by JFK, and it means that whoever is in this seat can be bold and innovative and unrestrained and unencumbered. And I think in a dark blue state, it is easy to think that voting the right way is sufficient. And I don't believe that it is. I think 
as a voter myself and as a black woman, I think that we've allowed uh, the public discourse to single issue constituencies and to not consider the totality, the totality of a person and the confluence of their life. So it's not enough just to say, well, Ayana, you're a woman and I support reproductive justice and I vote the right way on that. So are you all set? There's a a confluence of things that make up my identity politic. And in order for someone to really speak to that, for me to do that as an elected official, as a policymaker, it means that I not only vote the right way, but that I lead and I legislate. And I think one of the chief differences is that I govern cooperatively. I govern with community. Every legislative victory that I've realized was made possible because I went to the people, whether it was the cyclist or artists or entrepreneurs or um, surviving family members of gun violence victims. I went to the impacted group because I knew that was where the solutions would live. And so it's my fundamental belief that the people closest to the pain should be the closest to the power driving and informing the policy making. And that's how I've governed as a city councilor. And I believe that that brand of activist leadership and that style of cooperative governing is what the times require and what this district deserves. A leader that will extend the hand of partnership, that will listen, and that will be led by the stories and the struggles, the innovation and the ideas of the people they represent. You know, ultimately, I hope to be humbled enough, and I'm going to not just hope, I'm going to work hard to make it so, but to be sent to Washington to represent the 7th Congressional District. But if they do deliver me there, if the residents of this district do that, uh, what I'm letting them know is that they're not just sending me alone. I'm bringing all of them with me. So could you tell us a bit about your record? How have you fought for the people of Boston? How have you fought for your constituents through your time on the council? through your time as an activist? So um, I view every issue through a lens of health and equity. And so that has been um, the space that I've sat in and led on on the Boston City Council. I'm the founder and chair of the Committee on Healthy Women, Families and Communities. And so I've worked on those issues, promoting the safety, development and health and wellness of women and girls, um, looking for nuanced uh, policy ways to eradicate poverty uh, to break cycles of violence in all forms, domestic, sexual, youth, street, gang, and to reduce trauma in our communities. Um, and so uh, in bearing all of that in mind, I'll just highlight some of the things I'm proudest of. One, I, I was able to develop a comprehensive sex and health education curriculum uh, and to do that work in partnership with advocates and with the Boston Public Schools. That curriculum is culturally competent, age appropriate, medically accurate, and also includes increased access to condoms and includes curriculum around sexuality, which had previously not been included. Um, and I felt very strongly um, that we needed to have LGBTQIA competent um, sex ed. And it also includes healthy relationships because we were seeing an increase in intimate teen partner violence. So that curriculum is now uh, a permanent part of the BPS wellness curriculum. I also reformed the state's liquor license laws to make it easier for restaurants to open in underserved communities um, because I'm passionate about economic justice and also food justice. Um, and so I reformed a 100-year-old law 
working with aspiring restaurateurs, um, working with existing uh, restaurateurs, and working with two mayors, the city council, and our state legislature. Um, and so we've seen um, the bottom line improve for a number of restaurants that have been struggling, and then new restaurants open in communities that had historically been underserved and disenfranchised. Worked uh, before question four passed um, on the ballot to ensure that we would codify equity in the emerging cannabis industry to ensure that people that had been locked up disproportionately because of the war on drugs would not be locked out of what stands to be a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, And so that is now working with advocates um, and building a broad and diverse coalition, which is the way I've always worked. Um, We were able to pass on the state level the most progressive legislation in the country to ensure equity in this new industry. Just, I am a survivor of sexual violence. I endured a near decade of childhood sexual abuse and then later um, campus sexual assault. And so a lot of my work has been in the space of trauma. And that is one of the reasons why I'm running for Congress. There's a lot I'd like to cover there. I'd like to start with LGBTQ rights. I really appreciate that you pushed for the inclusion of LGBTQ folks in your sex ed curriculum. That's so important, something I talk about a lot. Obviously, you would support legislation like the Equality Act that would cement LGBTQ equality, cement anti-discrimination protections into law. But there are other pressing problems to the LGBTQ community that we don't hear talked about a lot. I want to cover ones that I have personally experienced in my life, that I have seen my fellow transgender and queer people experience. One, banning conversion therapy. Two, protecting the privacy of transgender Americans by degendering documentation and degendering public facilities. Three, providing mandatory training for public officials and employees regarding LGBTQ identity. And lastly, banning the mutilation of intersex children. That was obviously a myriad of policies, so you can feel free to ask me again about individual ones, but I would like to get your thoughts on that. Well, you're proving my point that, again, very often we single issue constituencies. And so I think there are those that perhaps thought once we had put in the work, uh, laboring in love for so many decades to make marriage equality real, uh, that perhaps the work was done. When we know that that employment and housing discrimination persists, we know that we are still fighting for equal access to uh, public accommodation. We know that our LGBT elders are in crisis and they need housing. Uh, many of them are having to re-closet just uh, in order to age in place and, and in community. And we also know that black, uh, Latino, and and trans uh, folk are being uh, murdered, and they and their families are seeing very little, if any, justice. So for all the issues that you've raised, um, those are issues that I'm committed to, and some of which have already been taken up by our Boston City Council, and I know our state legislature actually just passed uh, legislation banning uh, conversion therapy. Uh, I am fortunate, you know, to to live and work in a dark blue state where oftentimes we do get these things right, even if they don't happen as swiftly as I would like to see them happen. But we just have to continue to be vigilant. And I would say that one of the, or perhaps the only uh, silver lining of our current political climate 
and that we are drinking from a fire hose of insult and assault every day to our civil rights and our democracy is that our silos are breaking down. And I love the fact that now the same people that I see at the state house lobbying for criminal justice reform, I also saw at the Women's March. I also see, you know, organizing for the ballot box here to ensure uh, trans rights and accommodations. Um, and I also see and was with uh, several days ago, affirming uh, that families need to be kept together and that immigrants' rights are human rights. And so I think we have an opportunity here, Jordan. These are dark times, but we get to decide if these are going to go down as the darkest times in our history or if together we are going to intentionally usher in the most progressive, uh, inclusive change-making movement in our history. No longer is it acceptable to be complicit and complacent and to pawn off the hurt uh, one constituency to another. Our destinies are tied. So you mentioned immigration. That's really America's top issue right now. It speaks to the country's national identity, what exactly people want America to look like, I would say. If black and brown people have a place in society, that is, I would say, what this debate is really about. What's notable about your policy, you have called for the abolition of ICE. And something I think important to note within the Democratic Party is comprehensive immigration reform is a term thrown around a lot, and it does not actually mean comprehensive. The DREAM Act would only cover 30% of undocumented people, only some undocumented youth, not even all. And of course, you oppose family separation at the border, all the Democrats oppose that, but the DREAM Act is family separation within borders. It is saying that it's okay to deport undocumented elders, undocumented parents, undocumented grandparents. So I want to talk about why you support abolishing ICE, why you think it's inappropriate to inherently treat immigrants as a national security threat, and if you support providing a pathway to citizenship for all undocumented Americans, not just the 30% who might fit under the dreamer label. First of all, Jordan, um, I don't know if you have aspirations to be running for something one day, um, but we could certainly use your voice. I am uh, really stirred by your, your passion and appreciate your strength of conviction. And again, I'm grateful for this platform. You know, one of the things I have seen is that the millennials are very cause and mission driven, which is a beautiful thing, but they're not party affiliated. And I'm doing everything in my power in this uh, with my candidacy and our campaign uh, to change that um, because we certainly do need you uh, to have a seat at the table. So I just wanted to say that. So I support uh, abolishing and defunding ICE because we existed for quite a long time without it. This was born out of uh, 9-11. Their uh, avenues of enforcement are nothing but um, profiling and, and brutal and inhumane. And uh, with this recent policy, zero tolerance, which is informed by zero compassion and zero empathy, the entire thing is a Trojan horse. Uh, the president rolls this out um, to protect us from some national security crisis of MS-13 at the border, um, doing what he and his administration have always done, which is to criminalize immigrants, uh, vilifying the poor. Um, this has nothing to do with national security. This is a racist policy. Uh, and as uncomfortable as it is for us to come to terms with and to reconcile, this is not new for us. This is the continuation of a dark history for us of black and brown families having their children ripped from their arms, whether during slavery at the auction block or uh, to indigenous people. You know, this is uh, all too familiar. And so that's why um, I wanted abolished and defunded. Uh, I also 
you know, just some other things that I'm focused on in this space, I would like for the immigration status question to be removed from the census. Um, you know, while we're very focused on the border, I don't want us to lose sight of what we need to be doing in states and in the 7th Congressional District um, to support immigrants. Um, this district has the third largest concentration of Haitians in the country. Our state has the fifth largest concentration of Puerto Ricans, and we have almost 4,000 that have resettled here as weather refugees. Massachusetts was just cited as the worst state in the country for Latinos to live. So there's work to be done at home. And so I want the uh, immigration status question to be removed from the census um, because these communities um, are underserved and under-resourced um, because brown folks are undercounted. Uh, secondly, uh, we need to fight against the privatizing of access to English uh, language learning classes. In Massachusetts, the wait list is about 16,000 long. The fact that it's been privatized is cost prohibitive for many. And uh, folks need to have access to, to English in order to be more competitive in the job market, in order to successfully and effectively advocate for their children. Um, the other thing I'm championing is legal representation for those seeking asylum, for detainees, and for the undocumented. We do have an immigrant defense fund here. Uh, it's raised about a million dollars, but it doesn't go anywhere near as far as it will need to to meet the demand. Um, there's a public defender model in New York that I like a lot that would guarantee legal representation. Uh, and that's something that I'm looking at as well. And yes, of course, I support a Clean Dream Act and I don't want to spend one penny on a hate wall. We don't need to be protected from immigrants. The only person we need to be protected from is Donald Trump. Uh, so unless we're going to be building ourselves a wall to protect ourselves from him, I won't be investing one dollar in a wall. I will not be a moderate when it comes to the rights of immigrants, women, or the LGBTQIA uh, community. So I want a clean DREAM Act. And I also, in that, don't want us to forget about TPS holders either. It's really great to hear all of that. And you are absolutely correct that ICE is not a new phenomenon, though it was founded only 15 years ago. This history actually goes back to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Undocumented status was not criminalized until the Chinese Exclusion Act, and detention and deportation were not considered constitutional or under federal jurisdiction until the 1893 Fong Yuting Supreme Court decision. Could you give us your thoughts on why caging, incarcerating, and expelling human beings, in this case black and brown folks, is in inherently cruel, as well as your thoughts on the criminal justice system and the basic approach of incarcerating people. Jordan, that was a lot. What I will say is I appreciate your offering that historical contextualizing, and uh, I'm going to make it a point uh, in the future to make sure that I'm folding some of that in myself, although sobering and depressing. That was an incredible uh, history lesson. And and I think it speaks to a larger uh, issue here, and it's one of the reasons why I'm running for Congress in the 7th Congressional District here in Massachusetts, is that the inequalities and the disparities that exist were created by man, by policy. Um, we have a segregated school and housing uh, system because of redlining. We have income inequality um, and a wealth gap because African-Americans did not get equal access to the GI Bill. We have still the residual aftermath of the war on drugs and welfare reform. And so, you know, I grew up in a community where we didn't have access to fresh and healthy food. We had more check cashing facilities than banks. We 
were never on a pathway to home ownership. We rented our entire lives. We didn't have the peace of mind to feel safe in community. And, you know, my story is not a unique one. My mother raised me alone. My father, who is a brilliant man and would want me to tell you handsome too, battled addiction for a number of years and was in and out of the criminal justice system for 14 years. Fast forwarding my husband, uh, also because of a mandatory minimum, uh, was also a criminal uh, justice involved uh, and incarcerated for a number of years. As I said previously, I'm a survivor of a near decade of childhood sexual abuse and also campus sexual assault. So the issues that I champion and that I work on are not abstract for me. They are lived. I speak, you know, with transparency about these challenges and the social determinants that destabilized our family because I know that these are transcendent challenges. They are universal hardships. And I think that one way that we get at them is through policymaking and especially to do that policymaking in partnership with community. Um, On the issue of criminal justice reform, again, it's one of the reasons why I'm running. I, I bring a different lens to this, having had a parent who was incarcerated. So I'm very passionate and committed to making sure we are, you know, aside from eliminating, repealing mandatory minimums and doing bail reform, it just seems finally there is a bipartisan appetite for it, which is exciting. I also want to make sure that we are taking the steps to maintain familial bonds, to ensure successful family reunification, that we are exploring ways to have Corey-friendly housing. Um, The number one driver of recidivism is unemployment. And um, what contributes to that unemployment is that many people are being released from correctional facilities to shelter. You know, so those are some of the things, uh, you know, on that side that I'm focused on. And finally, I think it's a difference between myself and my opponent. Um, After the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting in Parkland, Florida, which was a tragedy, my opponent and I were both asked what we should do to ensure student and school safety. And he said that he thought we should explore bringing more police into the schools. And I vigorously disagree with that. I've been working for the last two years to reform school policies to prevent pushout. Increased uh, police presence and the militarization of our schools will not keep students or schools safer. Um, I'm originally from Chicago. Boston is an adopted home for me. We know the challenges in Chicago. They had many school police. Um, It in no way stemmed the violence. And in fact, recently they made the decision to offboard school police and to onboard social workers. So right there, I think there shows a difference between myself and my opponent. It's leadership is about more than your vote. So we might vote the same way on gun control reform, but after that vote, I'm going to lead and I'm going to legislate for trauma-sensitive and informed schools and against the militarization of our schools. And I'm going to lead and legislate and advocate for um, school nurses and social workers and guidance counselors. You actually just covered a lot of what I was planning on asking you. Your opponent really has pushed for militarization, has not worked for police accountability. And something that really stood out to me, he only votes with Donald Trump about 15% of the time. But there's this one vote with Trump that stood out to me, the vote for the federal Blue Lives Matter bill, which The Intercept described as the very worst sort of legislation, at once unnecessary and pernicious. Could you give us your thoughts on this reactionary piece of legislation? I mean, it's just the times we're in. I mean, think of the fact that, you know, Black Lives Matter, a movement founded by Uh, black, queer, trans folks who, most of whom were excluded from and couldn't find a home in in any other movement, you know, this change-making movement, they've now created a designation for black identity extremist uh, in the wake of Black Lives Matter. I don't even know what that means. It's just an excuse to profile and to, um, to target 
people that are exercising their own self-determination and affirming that their lives matter, which should not intimidate or be offensive to anyone else for me to uplift and to affirm that my life is a value. You have been a very prominent voice in the Me Too movement. Should you enter Congress, though, you would be working alongside a president who is a self-admitted sexual predator. He bragged about it on tape, likely among multiple sexual abusers in Congress. How will you handle that? I imagine that would be a very triggering, a very tough experience for you. How is that something you're going to, to manage to take care of yourself in that kind of situation? Jordan, <laughs> what a very um, kind question for you to pose. Um, so I don't find it triggering. I have been you know, I disclosed my sexual abuse and my campus sexual assault decades ago. So I'm comfortable in telling that story. Um, I'm not sure if you follow me on Twitter, but my former chief of staff two days ago posted uh, one of the many pieces of hate mail that I received the first time I disclosed in the city council chamber that I was a survivor of campus sexual assault. And not surprisingly, I was called a liar and, and a whore and, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. I think these issues are, are make people uncomfortable, not only because they have to reconcile that someone they love could be violated in such an egregious way, but moreover that they have to consider that someone that they love could violate someone in such an egregious way. Um, and so, you know, for many years now, I've been working to reform our tolerance around rape culture. And I've been working with the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center, um, the Victim Rights uh, Law Center, Jane Doe, Casa Mirna. And so I, if I'm so humbled enough to be elected to Congress, this is one of the things that I really want to work on as a survivor to codify this new activism uh, in the wake of Me Too and Time's Up and Enough is Enough through lawmaking to ensure that victims can get on a pathway to being survivors and on a pathway to true healing and justice in our courtrooms, in our workplaces, and within the corridors of power, including government. Um, the movement is a national one, but the resourcing needs to be happening on the local level. What I find with community-based organizations is that more people are disclosing than ever before, but they are struggling to meet the volume of disclosures with behavioral health health supports, with legal representation. And so that is something I'll be fighting for. And then finally, um, because I, I have been working to eradicate trauma, to mitigate and to alleviate trauma in all forms, there is a, a Survivor's Bill of Rights. Uh, this speaks to statutes specific to survivors of sexual violence. But I would like to expand that or amend it to include survivors of all forms of trauma. Um, so whether that that would include, you know, domestic violence or um, what I'm specifically looking at are surviving family members of gun violence victims. They're often left out of this peace equation. And uh, it's something that I've led on here in the city um, and that I want to do want to do and bring to Congress that perspective. 
Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Could you tell us about your foreign policy platform, especially how you hope to combat the racism, the imperialism, and the colonialism that we have seen define American foreign policy. What I aim to do is to apply um, my same values uh, that I bring to my domestic agenda to a foreign agenda to prioritize keeping families intact and together and keeping folks safe. You know, I think what we're living in right now is not just about I don't know, a narcissism and an impulsive policymaking, um, although that is certainly true. I mean, we have someone that is an isolationist and wants us to go it alone and wants everyone else to go it alone, too. Um, but I think ultimately these policies are informed by his inability to see the humanity in his fellow brethren. And so in all things related to foreign policy, you know, I'm still bringing a lens of um, humanity and making sure that we're holding space for both narratives and that we prioritize democracy and diplomacy and again, keeping families together and safe. So looking at kind of top leftist priorities, things that I think are very important, do you support the BDS movement, which is meant to boycott, divest, and sanction from Israel for its occupation of Palestinian land and its abuses of the Palestinian people? Well, on BDS, I think, I don't, Jordan, you are a great interviewer. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I must contend, you're asking me some questions that I've not been asked and not had to consider, truthfully. But on, um, you know, BDS, I think this is another situation where, you know, I pause because I don't support scenarios where we are just pawning off the pain. You know, we have to consider both narratives and both sides in this. What I would rather see is an investment in those that are fostering and committed to building peace on the ground. You know, that's where I think the focus should be in our resources. So lastly, where can folks find you online and how can they get involved in your campaign? 
Well, Jordan, since this is a millennial political show, um, I will encourage folks to go to Instagram, but I, I must concede because I'm 44 and I'm old school, I do still love Twitter. And that is me on that platform. That's not anybody else. Um, and so folks can always engage me there. It's just my name at Ayanna Presley. Uh, the same is true. My Instagram is also my name. They can go to my website, www.ayannapresley.com. Um, but uh, Twitter Twitter is the uh, the platform that I'm the most active on and where folks can uh, DM me about questions or event opportunities or ideas. You know, I love that. It's one of the things I do appreciate about social media platforms, the opportunity uh, to have a two-way conversation. And again, I think that's uh, the way that we need to be governing now. I think there are some folks that would make assumptions about why young people don't participate or why we have low propensity voters at all because voting is such a sacred right. But, you know, the bottom line is I think we don't have more young people involved because we've had gatekeepers who have excluded them and made them feel unwelcome. That we have to have now leaders that will extend the hand of partnership and be intentional about being inclusive. And that inclusion is not just about race and culture and gender and orientation. It also has to be about age. You know, two of the things that I've proposed to do if I'm fortunate enough to be elected is I will have annually a college summit. Um, There are so many college students in the 7th Congressional District from Lesley University to Tufts to Harvard. And I want to know why we're experiencing brain drain. Why are folks leaving? And what can we do to to stop this? Um, So I want to hear it in real time from them. I'm also going to establish a youth advisory council because I think too often young people are only being engaged about student loans or about school violence, when young people are not independent contractors. You know, they care if their grandmother isn't going to age in a community. They care if their parents are going to be displaced. Um, They care about if uh, they'll ever have the opportunity to own their own home or to benefit from Social Security if they live long enough. You know, and so I want youth voice at the table on every issue and not just on the single issues that typical politicians often engage them on. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, hit me up um, with your ideas and, uh, you know, with your questions, too. And please um, just stay involved. The greatest thing about democracy and public service um, from my vantage point is that there is no eligibility age. There's no eligibility age to participate and to make a contribution. Neither is there a sh- is there a shelf life. And we need you. Absolutely agreed. That's such a great message, and I hope our listeners really take that to heart. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I know this interview went longer than expected, but I really enjoy your insights. I think you are a very inspiring candidate, and I wish you the best of luck on your campaign. Jordan, thank you. If I could afford you, I'd make you an advisor. You know, you are so sharp. So just uh, keep doing what you're doing, my sister. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that a ton. Now to our listeners, if you want to hear other interviews with great candidates like Ayana, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. Support us through our Patreon and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.